Season 4 Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. They are the number one branded hamburger bun in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger tastes better. What's the latest and greatest coming out of my kitchen with Martin's? Honestly, I like to get a little crazy with it. We've done the inside out grilled cheese and the peanut butter and jelly French toast, but I kind of went simple the other night. I made a really delicious Parmesan broth and I used their hamburger roll as a dipper. I was in need of bread. I was a little nervous because it's such a soft, squishy, yet delicious roll, but it actually held up really well to the broth. So try it out if you ever need a dipper for your next soup or chili. Actually, good idea. Make a little crouton out of it and serve your chili over it. Anyway, here's what I love about Martins. They believe in giving back to their community. They support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others. And to learn more about Martins, visit potatorolls.com or follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. I think the worst days are when it affects my hands. And the way I can kind of explain it, it's it's like your hands are really cold like it is today and you try to tie your shoes and you're just fumbling with your shoelaces. But that's like it is trying to like use a knife or like those are the days I think things get most rough. And, you know, part of what makes our company so awesome is the people that have rallied around me and will pick up my slack and, you know, will carry things for me. We'll, like inevitably, I'll probably never clean a lobster again. Is this the worst thing in the world? Probably not. Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Capping, and in this week's episode, we sat with Chef Dan Jacobs. Now, you may not recognize this name off the bat. Dan's a Milwaukee-based chef. He hasn't been on Top Chef or Iron Chef for all these different food shows, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a story of his own. He's an extraordinary guy. He's the head chef and owner of a restaurant in Milwaukee called Dan Dan, as well as Esther Ev and Font Leroy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He has a partner also named Dan, hence Dan Dan. He's from Chicago, but he's been in Milwaukee since 2011 or so. And we cover some really interesting stuff in this episode, ranging from the cookbooks that inspired and influenced his career uh, in the kitchen, as well as the first time he saw a farmer come through the door in a kitchen he was working in and the impact that that had on him as a chef. He has two back-to-back James Beard Award nominations for Best Chef in the Midwest category in 2018 and 2019. Um, And when it comes to social impact, this guy is striving to raise awareness about a disease that he was actually diagnosed with. It's called Kennedy's disease. And we get into it in this episode. Him and his business partner, Dan, have created an event called Dim Sum and Give Sum. It's an annual event. It brings some of the top restaurants in Milwaukee together. They raise money for Kennedy's Disease Association. But they've also done this event with various chefs in various cities around the Midwest. I'm going to stop here. I hope you love this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Dan Jacobs. Did your wife make the, the does she make the plates out there? Yeah. Freaking beautiful. Yeah, she makes everything. She's a uh, Chicago, she's got plates in Chicago, Minneapolis, Madison, uh, here. She does, we do a quarterly dinner called the Plate Collective where uh, chefs, collaborate with her on a plate we, we cook for like 30 so we do five chefs 30 people 
chefs collaborate with her. They bring the food to cook their course for 30 people. They get all of those plates from their Very course. Cool. So it, it puts handmade plates in people's hands um, in an affordable way. Cause it's really like, I mean, the thing is like, in reality, this is like 15 bucks. Yeah. You know, so you're like, how the fuck do we get this in somebody's hands where it means something? Plus it's like, I, I think both of our, both of what we do like artistically is functional and also like, momentary like it's like you look at food food is one of those things it's like you you make this beautiful whatever it is and it's destroyed in seconds like nobody really like you just, people eat it this is gonna break like it, it's you have funny. to be okay with that i talked about that with a friend of mine who um he wrote a one-man musical called the wrong man 15 years ago and he's been playing it in people's living rooms across the world and people will call him or text him or email him and say hey can you send me the music I heard about this and he's like no you have to come see it or I'll come play it for you so he never sent it out finally people picked it up in Interscope he did a whole concept album with Interscope and it just did an off-Broadway performance for like 11 weeks in New York Um, and he talked about it with me he's like I wonder if we could do something he's like food and music food and how he did his music are these things he's a big pop songwriter also it's like food and music are these two things like there's this beautiful dish that so much thought went into and then it's gone yeah someone eats it he's like my thing some people see it for they see my performance for an hour and then they they never that's it well and also like being in a performance like that in that sort of setting like there's nuances and changes that happen all the time like i love going to see live music like i like i think um like some of my like i I love Dead and Company. I, I really do enjoy. I think, and I fucking hate John Mayer. Is like I want to hate him really bad, but like I like his, the way his, the way he plays Jerry's part is beautiful. And I think same thing with like Wilco. You look at how those guys put stuff together, and it's um, it's so momentary. Like you're gonna see that you could see a Wilco show or a Dead and Company show or like any of these like live live bands. They're not gonna play the same thing the same way ever. Like yeah. and so like being able to catch like like last year we saw Dead and Company at the Hollywood Bowl. Like, uh, a couple years ago, I saw Wilco at Red Rocks. Part of that was because it was like, I knew that there was no way like this would, this would be cool to see them at these venues and then they'll never play this like this again. So where are we right now? Set the scene. All right. So we are sitting inside Esterev, which is our restaurant inside Dan Dan. Uh, Esterev serves a 10 course tasting menu Friday and Saturday night for 20 people as they sit randomly. Oh, really? Um, so there's, so there's, two, oh, two got it. there's these two big community tables. So you're, I love it. So they, uh, we do uh, food kind of inspired by uh, me and Dan's kind of travels and, you know, our experiences. Uh, Esterev is uh, named after my great-grandmother Esther and Dan's grandmother Evelyn. Um, you know, these were the matriarchal forces of cooking in our families. Um, and so we wanted to kind of honor them by naming this room after them. There's pictures of them and pictures of us as kids in here and some paintings done by a local artist named Timo. And uh, all the food comes out of the Dan Dan kitchen. Kind of. So Dan Dan is, uh, Dan Dan's a beast onto its own. So the Dan Dan main line is about uh, 14 feet long, two walks, a flat top, six burner, deep fryer, and then an alto sham. And so that, they handle Dan Dan service, which on the weekends is upwards of, you know, we max out about 320, 330. Um, we average about 260, 270 people every Friday and Saturday night. During the week, it's a little bit less than that, like 100, 140, you know, and that doesn't account for to-go and delivery 
as well. So we have a little tiny side kitchen where me and uh, my sous chef, Zach and Danny, kind of cook for these 20 people on an induction burner uh, really? in, in bags. Uh, we flash stuff in uh, in the Alto Sham, but um, we have to be pretty like organized and ready to go. Otherwise it's, cause we can't really get on the line. Those, it's it's funny cause it's, you're in this little room in this little box cooking for 20 people and you have like the Grateful Dead playing and it's super chill. And then you walk in to the next room, you walk through this doorway and it's like straight chaos. Um, just, you know, people, you know, somebody yelling orders and smashing pans and plates. And is it, is it like at whatever you guys want to like feel like serving or is it Chinese as well? No, it's whatever we want to feel like serving. So we always knew that like Dan Dan, like I think Dan Dan for, for me, it, uh, it was definitely a very personal thing. Like it, it was uh, kind of like the food of my childhood. Like it, for special occasions, we went to Chinese restaurants. There was a Chinese restaurant named Chang's. It was down the alley from my parents' house in Chicago, and um, we would go there all the time. And so it, for me, like it's always been a happy place food. Um, it always reminded me of good times. Um, so we, that's how we kind of built the menu. You know, the egg roll is directly influenced by Peking House egg rolls on Devon. Um, it was an old, old Chinese restaurant. They've been there for years and years. Had the best egg rolls in, you know, in Chicago every year. That was the place my parents had taken me and my brother to when we were little. And so I, it's always been one of those things. When we were in high school, we would smoke a bunch of weed and cut class and then <laughs> go buy egg rolls and then go play basketball. Um, so you, did you grow up, you spent your childhood in Chicago? I did. I grew up in Chicago. I spent my childhood in the city. Um, went to Lane Tech uh, High oh, School. No yeah. Yeah. You were born there or you were born in Wisconsin? I was born there. We, uh, me and my wife moved to Milwaukee in 2011. Um, we both had kind of been laid off. Like I, we neither what like my, my wife, Kate, is a, uh, she's a potter. So she was a uh, assistant at Harold Washington College um, downtown. Um, and she was laid off when they did budget cuts. And our department, unfortunately, is one of the first things that ends up getting cut. So her position got eliminated um, in uh, end of 2010. And then uh, I was the chef de cuisine at Bistro Campan on Lincoln Avenue for like four years. Uh, I was let go, you know, basically because I just made too much money. And I kind of bumped around odd jobs here and there. Uh, for about, you know, six, eight months. And then we just decided it was like, you know, we don't own anything here. We don't, we, we lease our car, you know, we might as well just take off. We don't have kids. You know, we have a dog. We have a, uh, he's now 11. He's a Jack Russell Terrier, but we don't, we don't have anything. So it was so like. So just came to Milwaukee. So we decided to move to Milwaukee with some other friends of ours who live in Chicago. They backed out at the last minute. We decided to go. We didn't know anybody here. We just thought it'd be an adventure. My wife had a real hard time with it at first. Like she, you know, being in a kitchen, it's no matter where you go, you're working with kind of like-minded individuals. So it's kind of like just add water, make friends. You know, it's, you end up having people you, you can hang out with. You know, she doesn't work in restaurants. And so, you know, she worked at like Trader Joe's and she hated it and she like, she just didn't like it. And so we were going to move. And then, you know, we decided to stay. And I think it was the, you know, I think it was the best decision we ever made. I mean, That's cool. partly because we made friends. Yeah. Which is. Where's she from? She from Chicago too? She's from the uh, North Suburbs, so Glenview. Got it. Um, but we, uh, we made friends and then her mom passed away uh, mm-hmm. in 2011. And we, she decided she wanted, I mean, she wanted to be close to her family and. You know, we decided to stay because it was, you know, one of the things about Milwaukee is it's incredibly inexpensive to live here. People don't realize like it's, it's not expensive to live here. You know, the cost of living is pretty cheap and uh, it allows you to like kind of have a base and then be able to do stuff like travel, 
you know, um, open your own business. Like, I think that was something that we saw as a real advantage to being here. That's cool. All right. We dove in, but we're at Dan Dan, as we said, <laughs> I just had lunch here, which for me going to any Chinese type restaurant, like how does you can't, you can't order like a dish at a, a Chinese restaurant. It's ridiculous. So people, you know, at the tables next to me probably looked at me like I was crazy because I had three entrees and um, an appetizer, but that's okay. I have meals, you know, for the next couple of days. It was amazing. <laughs> at General Tso's cauliflower, did you, was that like, was that crispy rice powder on top of that or no? Yeah, yeah so we, that. that's, uh, yeah, that's some, uh, we toast the rice and then just make a rice powder out yeah. and put it on top of it. Like, that's like a traditional Thai thing though? Yeah, so I mean, we kind of, because neither one of us are, neither me nor Dan are Asian, and I feel like we, we take some liberties. That's you great. know, it was great. It's not like, it's general soap is not a traditional Chinese dish. There's no, you know, that doesn't really, I always, I always like to say, if anything, we're Chinese American, but authentic, like what really is authentic authentic is in your eyes like what you think it is it's super subjective so you know we we try to stay away from uh that thing and just cook food that makes us happy and in return we think that that's going to make other people happy sure for sure so for those folks listening obviously this is audio it's a podcast surprise we're at a chinese american restaurant in milwaukee and i'm sitting in front of a white Jewish yeah. man, Dan yeah. Jacobs, whose partner is a white man as well. Dan Van Wright? Yep. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so just putting things into context here. Is there something you're like the most proud of about Dan Dan? Um, I think, you know, what we wanted to do from the beginning is that, you know, we saw we saw we saw definitely there was a there was a hole to be filled in Milwaukee. There were you know, there was there was nobody doing anything kind of like a Mission Chinese um, or a Duck Duck Goat or like a you know something in that sort of vein, um, and we knew that you know both me and Dan had kind of bounced around for a bit. You know, Dan had been the chef at Hinterland uh, for about eight years. He's you know three previous times to me and him being nominated for James Beard um, semifinalist. He had been nominated on his own. And so we, you know, we're both really good cooks and, you know, it was a challenge and it was something that I think that we really took on because nobody was willing to show us anything. So a lot of it was us uh, watching YouTube videos, um, flipping through like old time life <clears throat> like flavors of China books. Um, Cause also wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, this is 2016, I guess there wasn't really a whole lot or 20 even 2015 outside of like the Momofuku cookbook. There wasn't a whole lot of Asian, like there wasn't a whole lot of Asian cookbooks you can really like delve into. Like Fuchsia Dunlop's book was a good one. And that was something we really leaned heavily on. Um, but we did a lot of, you know, uh, cooking at my house and just playing around with stuff. Uh, with me, him, and our uh, our chef de cuisine, Kristen, uh, here, who's been with us. Um, you know, she's been with me for seven, six years, um, you know, at, at two, two different restaurants. And then with Danny at two different restaurants for five years. You know, we've been kind of, we've been lucky. I think the one thing I'm most proud of is just the, you know, the fact that we, we did something without really knowing a lot about it and doing it in a way that I think we're doing it at, at a high level. And, uh, you know, we have, um, you know, just a great staff that's, you know, super behind what we do. It's cool. Super supportive and, um, you know, and vice versa. Like we give them a ton of freedom. You know, this is more Kristen's, I always, I tell people all the time, this is more Kristen's restaurant, I think, now than it is that's our funny. restaurant. I mean, that's it's funny. definitely, 
her food is definitely more on the menu, I think, now than ours. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. So I was going to ask, you know, the meaning of the restaurant, which it's your Dan and you mentioned your partner's Dan. So that's quite clear. But, you know, as we know, the chef community out there is super tight. It's a small world, smaller than many people know or think. And a lot of these chefs are super tight and they're good friends. Before we hit record, you had mentioned how you're good friends with uh, Stephanie Eisard, who's who's a guest of the podcast last week, believe it or not. But I'm just going to roll with this um, next segment that we're going to do. It's called, What Would Stephanie Eisert Ask Dan Jacobs? <laughs> <laughs> so Stephanie wants to know, what would you have named your Chinese restaurant if your name wasn't Dan? Uh, we actually we actually had this great idea um, of naming uh, it uh, Jinju. Um, so Dan is uh, a ginger. My partner Dan yeah. is, is a redhead. Uh, I'm Jewish, and we thought that would be fun. And then we're like, I don't know, man. People might get real weird about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, and we bantered about this before. I was, like, thinking about this on the way up here. It's hilarious because there's, I think, Sean and Ben are their names, the chefs in Philly that have Chew Noodle Bar and Bing Bing, and then there's Steph, this white woman in Chicago doing Duck Duck Goat, and then you and Dan – you know, and you guys are doing, like you said, like your version, your play on, on this cuisine. It's, yeah. it's fun, super fun. It does. I mean, and I know that it, you're never going to make everybody happy. Like, it's just, it just is the way it is. Yeah. People love to find something to kind of bitch about. Um, <laughs> no, you know, in a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, in, in all reality, all we're trying to do is make people happy. And I think the, I, I say it over and over again, like we're cooking food that makes us happy. And in return, we hope that it does that for somebody else. There's no social agenda. We're not trying to, I'm not trying to, you know, steal somebody's culture. I think we do it, you know, in a way that's respectful, but also like we're, we're having fun with it. And, you know, I don't, you know, would I, would somebody, so I also own a French restaurant. I'm not French. Would somebody feel the same way about that right, right. as they do this? I don't, I don't know. You know, and it's kind of one of those things that's always been, it's kind of lurked around. We're just trying to, like I said, man, we're just trying to go cook good food, pay people a honest living wage, take care of our employees the best that we can, um, and uh, have fun while we're doing it. Yeah, and I, I, I want to back up and say this because I wanted to say it at the beginning of this that I'm you know, friends with some, I know folks that work with your team and they're extremely inspired by your, you know, business acumen and how you operate. So I'm excited to get a little more into that too. So a huge part of this podcast is about social impact and giving back. And we usually do that kind of halfway through towards the end ish, Mm -hmm. but I'm actually going to move it up and do it now with you because you have a very unique situation, of course, that you're, uh, that you speak about and you've lived a fascinating life and I'm excited to get into that as much as we can in the time that we have. So basically three years ago, your life takes a couple, you know, a different turn for a couple different reasons. Take us to like what was going on in 2016 in your life around this time. So 2016 was crazy. We, um, you know, right in the beginning, January 5th, me and my wife uh, bought our house. And then 10 days later, January 15th, we signed the lease on uh, what was going to become Dan Dan and SRF. Oh, right away. Um, yeah, we're stupid, but we might as well just <laughs> knock it all out at once. Why not? Rip the just, bandaid off. Just yeah. go for it. <laughs> me and Dan had a lot of work ahead of us. And, you know, we, th- there was an extensive build out because the restaurant before 
before it was, you know, it was it was just a big, big box. And so we had to really kind of like build inside of what we were going to do. And partly like along that way during the build out, you know, me and my wife would work out together with this uh, personal trainer. And uh, Kate was uh, doing things that I couldn't do. Um, and I'm not saying that in any sort of chauvinistic way where it's like, I'm a man, I'm, mm, but I'm just bigger and stronger than she is, or I sh like I am. I mean, it, but she was doing things and progressing further than I was. And there was a disconnect and something was wrong. Um, I couldn't get up from like a prone position with like one, like if I was, if I had my left leg, if I had my left knee on the floor and my right foot on the floor, I couldn't get up from that position without like exerting a ton of energy and using my hands and or somebody else to help pull me up. You know, I, I, I first talked to a friend of mine, a friend of mine's brother who was a, a physical therapist, and he was saying it was, this may be, this may be neurological. And I, I remember being like, fuck you, man, this isn't in my head. But I didn't know what, like... So this is all, so you guys are building out Dan Dan. Yeah. You're going through all this. Okay, and this is about when you obviously... Was, suddenly received some more yeah, life-changing news. Yeah, it was literally February of 2016. Uh, we went to the University of Chicago. Uh, you know, serendipitously, my sister-in-law, my brother's wife, is a neurologist, which is also crazy uh, when all this comes up. So we went through a day of testing, um, you know, because they weren't really sure what was happening. And the testing was uh, invasive, um, you know, at the at the lowest point and at, at the highest point, it was you know painful and uh, really uncomfortable because um, the technicians are basically probing all of my muscle groups with this needle and kind of like moving around to uh, and then you know sending an electrical impulse through this needle to uh, stimulate the muscles in each major muscle group, starting with your hand. Imagine the needle going through your hand sideways and then going straight up or going down your legs. But they were excited in, in a way that was like incredibly uncomfortable. And I remember being, I remember being like, yo, man, what the fuck is going on? And these guys are like, oh, your doctor will tell you about it. And I, I remember getting real mad um, during it. And then afterwards, you know, they were like, all right, well, you know, worst case, this could be ALS. Um, you know, and I remember because I went by myself down to Chicago um, and I had to talk to my wife over the phone and my business partner over the phone. And I joke around, I called Dan, my heterosexual life mate. But it's like, these are the two people I spend the most time with. And I remember having, I remember both of them very, you know, freaked out about what was going on. Um, they ran the test, um, you know, for the Kennedy's disease. Um, all this was incredibly expensive too. And at the time we didn't have any fucking money. Like it was, I mean, we're talking like, I think the test to run for Kennedy disease was like $6,700 or something crazy like that because it is a rare disease and nobody fucking tests for rare diseases. So they found out what it was. It was Kennedy disease, which is a, uh, it's a neurological disease similar to ALS where, you know, it's degenerative. You lose, you lose muscle mass because of smashed receptors that aren't receiving information from your brain. And so they, your muscles atrophy. Um, you have basically what's called muscle wasting and there's, you know, you're not supposed to be able to build muscle, which is another thing, um, you know, and you can, you can hear it in my voice, like my voice isn't as strong as it used to be. And that's partly because the, the muscles controlling my uh, vocal cords are um, slowly going to kind of fade. It's, there's parts of it that's really scary. There's parts of it that, you know, some days I'm scared, some days, some days you just deal with it. You know, and it, and it affects differently and it affects, man, it's, it's so different from day to day. You know, biggest things. Literally. Yeah. Biggest things are like recovery is really difficult. Like I work out three days a week, try to eat a pretty decent diet. We take vitamins, you know, we try and circle our wagons around what works best. 
uh, gave up drinking beer and bourbon. Um, you know, I don't eat a shit ton of carbs because uh, uh, my nutritionist thinks this is a better way of doing things. And I don't know, man, I'm willing to try anything, you know, um, because there's no cure. There's nothing There's nothing modern medicine can really do right now. So, you know, we, we circle the wagons around what we can, but recovery is tough. Um, and then, you know, I think the worst days are when it affects my hands. Um, and the way I can kind of explain it, it's, it's like if your hands are really cold, like it is today, mm-hmm. um, and you try to tie your shoes and you're just fumbling with your shoelaces, yeah, yeah. but that's like, it is trying to like use a knife or like, oh, really? you know, and it's, those are the days I think things get most rough. And, you know, part of what makes, you know, our, our company so awesome is the people that rally around, um, have rallied around me and, you know, we'll pick up my slack and, you know, we'll carry things for me. We'll like, inevitably I'll probably never clean a lobster again. Is this the worst thing in the world? Probably not. Um, but you know, these little menial tasks, you know, that I have a hard time doing like cleaning Brussels sprouts or peeling potatoes or cleaning lobsters or, you know, it's, it's these little things that that's where your brain works. At least that's how my brain works. That's where my brain comes up with ideas. That's where I, in these like moments of doing something repetitive is when, you know, I, I started thinking about a dish and start thinking about like, oh, we can build on that flavor with this and whatever. And you take that away and it becomes really hard to kind of replace that. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned your staff and them rallying around you. So for multiple reasons, I think chefs try and set up their restaurants for success for for a couple different reasons. And Stephanie actually talked about this, but so they don't have to be in them 24 seven, whether it's they want to open more places and you have multiple places or they're getting older, whatever it is. But you obviously have a different reason for this. Did the diagnosis affect like how you look at the future of your restaurants? Yeah, because it made me realize that, yeah, I don't think we would have opened up Fallen Roy as fast as we did. Um, but I, I know that I have a finite amount of time where I can, you know, really, really kind of make an impact on, on menus and, you know, be part of the cooking process and, you know, do this. Um, you know, and it's, I know that that's a thing. And it's, you know, it's like this weird sort of like in the background, like, you know, we joke around about it, but it's also there. It's like, shit, I might have to be in a wheelchair someday. I mean, walking up and down stairs is tough. I mean, some days it's one step at a time, man. Just going one step at a time, like like, like, uh, like my grandma used to do before she passed away. It was like, you just go one stair at a time because it's really hard for me some days to lead with my right leg. Um, you know, uh, I fall, like, because I, I trip, like if... Like I, I tend to like I'll drag my feet, but I also don't have the recovery to to stop it. So like I mean, there's there's a that's the biggest thing is people usually break the, like break something, and that's where they end up being having to be in a wheelchair or using some sort of uh, assist. Um, in the first year, uh, I had a real hard time. Um, I think it was because I was I think it was partly because I was depressed, you know, um, probably because I was. It, like they were, I, you know, there, there's, there's pain associated with it. Like, you know, dull sort of kind of like achy all the time shit. Um, and I was taking, um, some like low level, um, like painkillers that were, you know, probably you know, something that could become habit forming. I'm trying to figure, I can't remember the, I can't remember the name of what it was. Um, but it's in the same family as like, as you, you move up the ladder, you start taking things that are more progressive, like, you know, um, uh, what's it called? 
shit that people get addicted to. Why am I blanking on it? Like an opioid? Yeah, yeah, totally. So it was like a low-level opioid. Um, And I, uh, you know, I I think I kind of lost a month there. I don't really remember. Like the October of 2016, where it was just kind of like... And there was this period where it was just like... I remember we went back... We went back to the doctor in October. So we, so between February 2016 and October 2016, you know, we opened up the restaurant. We were moving all, you know, moving parts all the time, running around. Um, you know, I started to kind of break down more. Um, we went back to the doctor for a six month checkup in October. And I think that was the moment where you realized, uh, this was not going, they weren't going to give me a pill. Like this wasn't going to be something that, you know, here, take this and you'll be, you'll be good in two weeks. This is something that I'm going to have to live with. Um, and I remember being really depressed about it and being really mad and, you know, angry at the fact that this was happening now, you know, when I, you know, finally was doing something that I was excited about that I really wanted to do. And, you know, I just, no, I don't have to, I mean, I remember being really like angry about, you know, why is this happening now? Um, you know, and I had gained, I had gained, I think it was around 220. So I'd gained like 40 pounds. You know, I was, I was drinking a lot. Um, I was obviously taking these low level opioids that weren't really fucking good for me. Out of that like sort of funk and depression and you know, I think it put me and Kate in a really bad place for a second. Like I, I, out of that idea came, you know, out of that like fog came the idea for dim sum, give some, like a way to give, a way to kind of uh, raise money. And I think for me to be able to open up and talk to people about it, because at that point, Dan knew, my wife knew, my family knew, because also, you know, being that it's genetic, I didn't really explain that. It's also genetic. My brother also has it, um, and his daughter also has it. His daughter's three. Um, you know, it won't manifest until she's probably, you know, in her 30s, but... Okay, so you've raised a lot of money and spent a lot of time giving back to yeah, Kennedy's yeah. disease. So, so to, yeah, talk about Dim Sum and Give Some. So Dim Sum, Give Some uh, came out of this sort of just this, you know, funk. Um, but, you know, it started off as something kind of small. Like we did, um, we did the first one in, in 2017, the spring of 2017. Uh, you know, part of it was because I wanted to open up and talk about uh, talk about it because that it made me less afraid the more I talk about it. So you hadn't. So your wife and your partner Dan, they knew. I think yeah. our other our other partner Jeff knew. Like my family knew, but not a lot of people knew about it. And like I told I told some friends. Every time I told somebody, they would you know, they would freak out, and then I'd have to kind of take care of them. Um, you know, and I, I I felt like I needed to kind of tell more people because I felt like that would help me become comfortable with it and comfortable with the idea of it. Um, and then, you know, the one thing that we do well as chefs is, man, we raise money. Like, yeah, <laughs> like it's, you know, we get asked to do a lot of charities. Well, I was going to say, you were probably giving before this because chefs. Yeah, we always do charity voice, events, man. Yeah, we always sure. do charity events. And I think, you know, if we see injustice, man, it, we're, it's real easy for us to kind of like call people, you know, call out on it. We got some friends together. Uh, we, the first year we raised uh, about 20 grand um, doing one event um, in March. Uh, second year, we raised about the same 20, 25 grand, something like that. Um, you know, and then last year, uh, we bumped up to 35. And so our goal for next year is going to be 45 to 50 because we thought we could really push to 50. So there's this one lady in, uh, in Texas that raises more than me. She raises like 45 or 50 grand a year. And I, I'm, 
I'm oddly competitive about certain things. You're a chef, man. But I'm not that like, <laughs> but I'm also not like, like I also wish the best for my friends. Like of course. If, if like, you know, if somebody else, you know, in the top 30, so Milwaukee has like a top 30 restaurant that comes out. If somebody's ahead of us, I'm happy for them, especially if it's one of my friends. Like, I'm like, damn, good on you. But uh, that I'm like, uh, and it's like the weirdest thing. It's like the competitive nature comes out and it's also such a good way it's a good way to be, and so are they all up here, or they do you do them remotely? So we've done a couple of remotes, like we we did one with Stephanie down in uh, Chicago. Um, we just did one uh, at Cafe Con Call about a month ago down in Chicago. We did one out in Madison with Tori Miller at uh, uh, one of his spots. The biggest thing, you know, so now we have two events a year here. Uh, one of them is a gal event. <clears throat> you know, it was really cool last year. We had at one point there was like. Uh, seven James Beard winners all plating shit like at the same time like because it was everybody had a course uh, and because I had to kind of host we made our executive chef uh, Matt kind of um, expedite service and like deal with this and he's like how the fuck am I supposed to yell at Paul Bartolotta like that guy <laughs> <laughs> he's like that guy was my like you know Jedi master for you know years like how the fuck am I supposed to yell at him now and I'm like I, I don't know man I, I can't that's yeah, funny I gotta, I gotta go do this you're on that um but it's you know it's nice because everybody's coming back again this year um and I think it's gonna be bigger uh Wisconsin Foodie which is a local PBS program that's won um won an Emmy for you know their their food documentary stuff they they filmed it and I think it releases in January. Um, so we're going to kind of coincide the release of that with the release of the announcement of you know everybody coming back, plus a couple extras uh, like Ryan Pfeiffer from Blackbird. Um, you know, and you're right, man. The chef community is close, and it's nice that we kind of you know we take care of our own. People rallied around it, man. There wasn't a person I asked that was like, no. That's very cool. You I know. love that. That's so great. So I want to like this team here and at, at all your restaurants, I want to talk about this team and really your success as a chef. Can you cruise us through? You've been at a, like a lot of different places in the Chicago land area and a couple here, a few in Milwaukee. Can you cruise us through, cruise us through your cooking career? Oh man. All right. So <clears throat> started actually in Door County, Wisconsin, 1997, uh, the Inner Crossing in the cookery. Went back to Chicago, got a job at Carlos Restaurant. Carlos Restaurant at the time was like the third or fourth best restaurant in the city. Super like old school French, closures, like tuxedo waiter, um, real classic. Uh, from there, I was on the opening, uh, on the, just after the opening team, uh, True, um, in 99. Was there for was there for a bit, um, and then uh, left there. Joined uh, Bruce uh, during his kind of like beginning at uh, North Pond. Um, you know, before they did the re remodeling, and we we're in the dungeon kitchen that would just like there, it was dark and it would flood all the time. Like every time it rained, it was gross. <laughs> I guess it was gross. But um, you know, I, I that was the first time I ever saw a farmer was at uh, was at uh, North Pond, and I think it. It had such a crazy effect uh, on me. You know, I, first time I saw Dave Cleverton from Kinnikinnick Farms walk in the door as one of the founding members of the Green City uh, Market was, uh, it, it had a profound effect on me. Like it was, it, you know, it was like an aha moment. Um, you know, went from working for Bruce to working for Eric Obrio at his restaurant Obrio for uh, a year and a half at the same time I was working there. 
was a real go-getter. So then I went and worked uh, pastries in the morning at Naha when Carrie opened up Naha. Wait, I for, I totally forgot about this. When were you? I I worked pastries at Naha. Oh no way! Yeah, really? I worked when I I graduated culinary school in two thousand one. Okay, it was after. It was like 2000, it was 2000, 2001. I graduated culinary school in March of 2002. So I worked pastries from like April to like September. Was the sous chef Andy still there? The guy from Texas? Is that like the big bald headed dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was great. And then he- fire. But he left, good dude. He left to, uh, I think he went to be like the executive chef at the Greenbrier or something like that, which yeah. I don't think he's there anymore. I could be wrong. I don't know, man. All I know is that guy, I remember he was a huge uh, Jimmy Buffett fan and spent like $300 on a uh, Hawaiian parka. <laughs> like, to go see him during the wintertime? I was like, you're fucking crazy. That's funny. Um, so uh, I was working at both those restaurants at the same time when uh, I got married to my first wife. Uh, who was in the industry. She was a, um, uh, she was a cake decorator and she worked in bakeries and stuff. Um, uh, and then um, uh, started working for Sean McLean at Spring. I was the first person hired outside of the opening at Spring. So it was, it was funny. You had like half the kitchen was uh, Vong. That's where me and Stephanie met. Um, she was on the opening team there. And then the other half of the kitchen came from Trio. So I was the first one that got hired. And I remember I, I think somebody told me this, like everybody got a raise because I asked for too much money and they accepted me. Um, I was good. I was, I was, I was, I've always been a really good line cook and I have no problem. I, I can, I was always a good line cook. And I think that was something that, you know, and I was always willing to outwork uh, the person next to me. And I think that's also kind of, you know, for young cooks, I mean, that's the key, man. Like it's, there's no big secret. You just got to work hard. Like it's, you know, this is one of those industries that hard work, you know, putting in the effort will pay off. Like it, you just, you, there's no quick, there's no quick fix. It's not like it's, there's no, there's no pyramid scheme, get rich fast. Like you just gotta take your time, man. And you know, really like give effort, um, learn as much as you can. I mean, man, that's the beauty of what we do now is we, we still learn, so it's great. Um, you know, I worked for Sean uh, Spring. I was the opening sous chef at Green Zebra uh, when, uh, up to Evanston and worked with Jackie Plutone and Eric at this restaurant in Nara that was short lived in the Hotel Orrington. Um, but that was my first chef job and it was embarrassing, like the food that I put on that menu. Wait, like, why? why? Uh, were was, you were you not ready? Or No, man, like... Or like, was your first one and you were like... You I know. was just putting things together that, you know, just didn't make sense. Like, I, I was... Be trying to like bite off more than you can chew type thing. Totally. It was like 26. Um, I was the only, like they, I remember they let go of Eric, who was the chef then. And then I was the sous chef and they're like, oh, we're going to promote you. And I think it was too much money. Like I, I had, you know, I had some drug problems because of the too much money, but I would put things on the menu, like, you know, sauteed halibut with vanilla braised turnips and red curry foam. I mean, it was fucking gross. <laughs> like, but it was, it's funny, you could look back and just be like, oh man, that was dumb. Um, you knew you had a drug problem. I think it took a while to figure out, but yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it, this industry is tough, dude. And it's like, it's, it's easy to fall into, you know, it's easy to fall into like the after work party scene, especially being in that age of like 20, mid twenties. But the toughest part is just growing up and realizing that you're in your thirties and you can't do this and you just stop and you just stop all those things. Um, you were able to just stop. I was able to stop. That's I good. mean, I, my wife, Kate is an incredible human being and she would not have, um, she would not have gone along for the ride of my, um, 
she was, I always joke around, she's the yin to my raging yang. Um, but she would not have, she would not have stuck around. You know, we've been, you know, me and Kate have been married now for, um, you know, uh, it'll be 12 years next year. Um, you know, we've been together for over 15. Um, but like, she's definitely the mellow, she's the mellowing force of me. Um, but it's, uh, it's tough, man. I mean, restaurants are, restaurants are a rough thing. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think we all have our little demons and, you know, sometimes it brings out the best and the worst. Give me three words that your business partner, Dan, would use to describe you. Loud. Um, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's a reason why like our dynamic works so well. It's, it's like a marriage, you know, there's, there's gotta be, one is going to be more forward. The other's going to be more backward, uh, loud, hardworking, um, uh, fast thinking probably. That's good. All right. So let's flip that. What three words would you use to describe the other Dan? Calming, um, thoughtful, uh, caring. Wow. That's, people don't, that is such a great relationship. People don't realize how caring he is. Like he comes off as like he doesn't care, but man, the guy's got a huge fucking heart and nobody like everybody plays off. Like he plays it off like he doesn't, but he's got a huge fucking heart. That's very cool. All right, so Milwaukee, we talked about we, we talked about why Milwaukee. What's the what, what, I, I, it's been so long. I, I feel like the last time I came here, besides maybe like Milwaukee Fest or something sometime over the past many years was like in high school when I drove to Cops Custard or something like that for a butter burger and flavored custard. <laughs> but like what's the dining scene? Like, what's it like here? So, I mean, it's uh, one of the greatest things about Milwaukee is you have a lot of owner operated restaurants. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things it's you know, you don't you don't have a lot of uh, chains. There's not a lot of big restaurant groups. You know, you have you have Bartolotta's, but even Bartolotta's like Paul's involved in that. You know, Adam Siegel's still very much involved in that after Joe, uh, Joe went like the main patriarch passed away. Um, but you know, I mean, that's like your big restaurant group. Outside of that, you have you have some little restaurant groups, and then you have places that, you know, we all kind of grew up rallying around. I mean, and that's the thing is, it's it's a really small community, but everybody really pulls, I think, for each other in the same direction. And uh, Thomas Hock, who's on circa eighteen eighty, is now the um, executive chef of the Lowlands Group. Um, He's always said it, I think, better than anybody else could. And it's just like, you know, we're all all in Milwaukee. Like if one of us one of us wins something, we all win something. Like if it anything that's going to like bring um, any sort of attention, you know, to Milwaukee is good for all of us. I think we're, you know, all of us feel that way. I don't think any of us, you know, you know outside from maybe like one or two people would would agree with me. On yeah, that. that's cool. OK, so I always like I often ask chefs if like along their cooking journey that they ever want to throw in the towel. But obviously this question like gives a whole new meaning to you. And you talked about like, there's good days, there's bad days, but like what keeps you going? Like what keeps you excited? Um, what drives you? You know, I, I have to admit, I think um, what drives me is that, you know, I, again, this industry's the coolest thing about this job is that you'll never know everything. And I think the pursuit of learning something new and doing something, uh, different, um, you know, is always there. Like the wheel has been built, like it, the flavor wheel is there. Like, it's not like you, there's a reason why people don't put salmon and white chocolate together. That shit ain't going to work. Um, but I think that, you know, just to be able to, you know, give somebody else, uh, I think being able to give somebody an experience 
changing their day. Like you have a customer who comes in and they're in a shitty mood and by the end of their meal, their day is 180 and they're, you know, fucking smiling. I think, I don't think there's anything better or reminding somebody of their childhood. I think that's like the other key to success in a restaurant. So speaking of that, who, so who inspired your cooking as a kid? It's funny because my parent, my parent, my mom's going to hate this, but she was, she was not, (laughs) not, not inspired. It's not what? inspiring. Um, so as a kid growing up, both my parents worked very hard. Um, you know, they put me and my brother through uh, private school. Um, you know, they really pushed us. They, you know, we were, me and my brother played like all these sports. They paid for all this stuff. I mean, they literally were very involved, uh, but they both worked full time. My grandma kind of like she worked part time, but also kind of took care of us a little bit, too. You know, if it it, it came out, if it didn't come out of a bag of box or a can, it pretty much was like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And it was like the two days a year that we made real mashed potatoes. And, yeah. You, know, you saw, I remember when my mom would buy actual green meats and be like, what? Whoa. Yeah. Were you into cooking? Uh, I was. And so like I, I, my earliest memories are of my dad when he, so my dad, uh, my dad works in banking and there was like a two year period. He was out of work in the eighties um, after the stock market crashed in like 87. And uh, he would make dinner. And so he would have, we would come home from school and me and my brother would have this list of chores to accomplish before dinner. Uh, and my way of getting out of that was to help him out in the kitchen. And so I would, I would help. First it started as me just like, you know, getting out of doing something. And then it progressed into like, I really liked doing it. And I, I, I had fun with it. And it was like simple shit. It was like, you know, meatloaf or tomato sauce, you know, for- How old were you? Uh, 11, 10, yeah. you know, something like that. So these are some of your earlier childhood yeah. food memories. Uh, yeah, and it was, and I was always fascinated by what happened behind the closed doors. Like we would go to these little like uh, red sauce joints um, on the north side of Chicago. Like there was this one called Manzo's, which doesn't exist anymore on Irving Park or Sabatino's. God, I also, miss Sabatino's too. I know, Sabatino's. We were, we started going back again after we moved. We would go back and um, and just, I, I've had some really crazy experiences there. We had a server who was so drunk. I, he was like, he, he literally dropped off our food and what, said, uh, but, uh, but, uh, have a good meal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I was always fascinated by the, what happened behind those closed doors. Like what, what happens behind there? Um, and then I don't know, man, like I always like things with lots of tools. Like, you know, I, I like the idea of being an architect because you had all these like pencils and rulers and shit. I like the idea of being a mechanic because you had all these tools. Did you have family dinner growing? Like, what was your we family did. table like? We had like? dinner. We had dinner every night. Every night, everybody sat down. It so was, mom cooked, but it was usually like. A- but it was always different people too, man. Like you had like, you know, you had like, you know, my mom's, you know, friends. You had like kids from the neighborhood. Like it was always different. Like my dad's buddies. There was always like different people at the table, which actually inspired how we do this in SRF. Oh, that's cool. Because I, I always liked that. I always thought that a lot of times you met people you never would have met and you had some fucking weird conversations sometimes. It's like when we were in high school, it would, when we were more, you know, I think thoughtful, um, you know, we had some really awesome conversations. Um, but it was dinner, it was every night. I mean, you sat down at the dinner table every night. Everybody sat down. Like there was no... You know, there wasn't like you couldn't watch. Eat. We never ate in front of a TV. There was no TV in the kitchen. Like there was only like I remember, my parents had a TV. They had a small TV in their bedroom, and there was one TV in the living room. That was it. And then, like we didn't get a CD player until I was like sixteen. Like I, I didn't. You know, we had records and we had like cassettes and stuff. 
we didn't, weren't allowed to have telephones in our bedroom. Like, you know, me and my brother, I remember we got our first TV in our room. I think we were teenagers, you know, so we could play Sega Genesis, <laughs> you know, play NHL 95. I don't know. What was your first like job in the food world? Uh, I was a uh, morning uh, shorter cook at the cookery in Fish Creek. Um, but I remember always like the nighttime guys would come in and they were so, and it's like, it's like that, it's like that, uh, first chapter in, uh, Kitchen Confidentials it, that really, like, I remember reading that like two years after that and it hit like, that was exactly what it was like. The nighttime guys were so fucking cool. They got, <clears throat> they had the best weed. They got laid. Like, you know, I was just like, they were like, they were just cool. They had tattoos. They were like. Their banter with the with the kitchen staff or, or the, with the front house staff was like how dope. Old, how old were you? Uh, 18, 19. After high school. Yeah, it was just it was right after high school, um, and I was just fascinated by it. Did you go to college after high school? Or did you just? I did. Like I bumped around. I went to uh, community college. Went to um, Wright College uh, on the north side uh, for a semester, but it was <clears throat> there was it was like the it was like that. You're like wait a minute, nobody's nobody's gonna. They don't care if I come to class, like, so I could just basically sit around, smoke weed, and play hacky sack. Like, like, okay, cool. I'll just do that. Uh, and I remember I got like three credits. I had a bunch of incompletes. I did have a uh, story published, uh, like in the um, in like their like quarterly or something like that. That's cool. But uh, about the, what? Uh, I fucking don't remember. <laughs> That was so, man, I actually, I like, I'm totally going to look it up after this because yeah. I don't fucking remember. <laughs> I forgot about it. So we just started talking about it. I haven't even thought about that That's in years. Funny. Uh, but we, uh, my mom was like, I'm not going to pay for it anymore. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to go anymore. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I also think, I think my parents were convinced that I was going to be a, like just a dirt bag. Um, like, really? or, or just like, I mean, man, I, I was like, I went from being a really good student and like good at sports and whatever to basically being like a fuck up. Uh, Did you ever school. think you'd be where you are today? I always, man, I th like I want to say like inside my head, like I knew I always knew I was gonna be successful. I just wasn't sure what it was, but something about a kitchen clicked. Like there was a there was like a hierarchy and a system that made sense. Um, you know, it was. Uh, it, it, I don't know what it was. It was like, I, I loved it. Like the 15 hour day, 14 hour day never felt like anything. Like it felt like just a day. I didn't care about missing, you know, parties. Remember I, we had, I, I was, I was part of four guys that lived in this party house in Chicago, uh, in Rogers park. Our house was literally called the rocket house. Like it was people, it was a party house. Like people had, we would have like these crazy, like 150 people parties, like keggers and shit and cops would call it, come. All right, guys, break it up. Uh, but like, I remember, you know, I didn't care. Like, I didn't give a shit that I was not going to be there till like later or that I might miss it because I'd have to work the next day. I didn't give a shit. Like it was, it, it there was something about it that I just, I, w I remember like while my roommates were like playing video games and we're all smoking weed, I would, I had, I would write out menus for restaurants that would never exist. And like, I would flip through like cookbooks at like, you know, 20 years old you know, 21 years old. And I didn't go out to bars really. I didn't, I didn't really drink real, really until I was like 25. And that's when I started working in Wicker Park. I think it was just, Wicker Park's got a way of fucking just, <laughs> it's like a center of hell, man. It just digs you, <laughs> like drags you down with what it. What were some of those early, so you were flipping through cookbooks like when you were doing short order cooked stuff. 
early, like, so there was a, way back in the day, there was this thing where they had, uh, um, do you remember like Columbia House Records where yeah. like you can get a bunch of tapes for like yeah. uh, a penny or something like that? Well, there was a book club that did that too. So you could order cookbooks. I remember signing up like all of my roommates, our cats, like whatever, so I could get my hands on cookbooks. But like, I remember the ones I, you know, the the first series of Charlie Trotter cookbooks. Um, uh, I remember when I was, when I was at True in 99, um, for Christmas, my, my mom got me the, uh, French laundry cookbook and it had such an impact. And it was funny cause I, my parents also thought that what I was doing was like, they're like cooking What the fuck. Like, yeah. It's like, you're going to cook like whatever. Right. Uh, and then they went to dinner at Carlos the first time and they were like, Oh, this is more. I mean, up until that point, I think everybody thought my family, I don't, I mean this in the best possible way. The pinnacle of dining was Red Lobster. I thought it, that was as good as it got. Like I didn't think it really went beyond that. Um, it wasn't until Carlos that I realized like it was like food goes much further than that. But those books are, you know, they're still, man, that, I, I still have that French laundry cookbook. I have all those cookbooks. That's why I'm not allowed to have a record collection is because I have a, probably like a seven or 800 pound like cookbook collection that's that so we travel funny. around with. Yeah, that's funny. I have something similar and my wife seems to trim it down every time we move. <laughs> um, all right, let's do a quick speed round and we could wrap it up. What'd you have for dinner last night? Uh, I had Dan Dan. It's funny as we say, we came in here cause I haven't eaten here in like four months and I, I wanted to try some of the new stuff we just put on the menu. Awesome. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Uh, I love the smell of mirepoix cooking and butter. It's like one of my favorite things in the world. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Uh, sulfur, like you can smell something burning like a mile away. It's like one of the acrid, like that smells just so, and it's also like, it's just infuriating. So you're just like, oh God, that's <laughs> just, somebody just fucked that up. <laughs> what pisses you off in the kitchen? Uh, laziness. Like, especially the, when you know it's lazy, like it's like, you're, like people being not clean, um, you know, not making the extra effort. Like you're just like, you're, you're. So you're coming in exactly at the time you're supposed to come in. You're not putting in any extra effort. Like it's just, especially I think for myself, because it's like, I, I wish I could put in more effort. And for when I see people who are younger than I am, who want to be in this industry and don't get the fact of what this is. Got it. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Mm. Uh, music and joking around, man. I, we keep it pretty light. Like I have to admit, like you spend 12, 13 hours with all the same people. You, you got to keep that shit pretty light. I like the fact that we have a good crew and like everybody gets along. Yeah. If you were not a chef, what would you be? I feel like, <clears throat> I feel like I'd be a history teacher. Like I love, I, I love, I, that's also something that like my brain has always been really good at is remembering dates and facts and shit like that and I always thought that was actually my first I think career choice was something like that and I'm fascinated by um, American history and like some of the you know just like how how especially how we perceive American history and how how it's probably not what was taught to us and how it, it could it's it's probably in, in theory quite different interesting last one what actor would play Dan Jacobs in a movie about <laughs> your life <laughs> Ben Affleck yes <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. In closing, the good old legacy question. What, would you, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, to be thought of as somebody who, uh, you know, who inspired and brought up other guys. Like, I don't, 
I, I like the idea that, you know, our, our industry is all about paying it forward. Like somebody gave me a chance and opportunity at some point, took me places like to food and wine events and shit like that. And we definitely try and do that with our staff. And we, you know, whenever we're doing outside events with other chefs, we always bring people with us. And, you know, I want, I want our staff to, to grow. I want them to, to leave here and go someplace better and bigger. And, you know, and I think that's, I think that if I had to choose a legacy, it would be, you know, that people thought of us as teachers and, you know, and, you know, that they, you know, we, we did the right thing by them. That's awesome. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. Yeah, I literally, I have to go like, I have to run to the hotel now and have a kitchen meeting there. Thank you. I love everything you're doing. I loved learning all about you, your business. I'm sure we could sit for hours more, but you have a business to run. Um, so thanks for all you do and for how you give back. I mean, all these chefs give back in so many different ways. Yours is obviously extremely meaningful to you. And I guess I'll say keep that competitive edge, uh, you know, when it comes to that. And, you know, that, make, 50, make 50 this uh, year, next year. Do we year. want to? It's, it, it's, uh, it's definitely a goal. Um, also, like this is as far as like a podcast goes, this is probably the easiest um, I've done quite. I feel like I've, I feel like I'm becoming pretty good at doing these at this point. And yeah, this was real smooth. So. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hey, all, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Dan is an incredible guy. If you want to learn more about Kennedy's disease or give back, go to kennedysdisease.org. Thank you again to Chef Dan Jacobs. You can find more on him at dandanmke.com. You could find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at the National Mango Board. Hey, if you are not aware, every day in the U.S. is mango season. That's right. They're available all year round. There's about six varieties in the U.S. here. And here's the thing. Mangoes aren't just for smoothies or Thai mango sticky rice, although maybe they should just be for Thai mango sticky rice because it'd be worth it. There are tons of chefs coast to coast sharing the versatility of mangoes as well. So if you're cooking at home and a recipe calls for pineapple, let's say, swap it out for a mango. It's delicious. They're a great complement to tons of different dishes. I love enjoying mango in its purest form, quite frankly, for some of the other ways that I enjoy it. But honestly, sprinkle a little good quality cinnamon on it and it's amazing. Or you can go the Mexican street cart route with some salt, lemon or lime juice, chili powder. Also delicious. Here's something else pretty cool. The mango industry empowers farmers in regions around the world who for generations have been growing mangoes. So anyhow, there's endless ways to enjoy mangoes. If you need a little mango inspo or want to learn more about National Mango Board, check out mango.org or follow them on social at Mango Board. National Mango Board, we thank you. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music has been composed by Goldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.